Hello everyone and welcome back to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host Taylor Woodland and guys it's been so long. <laughs> I'm back. Uh, due to personal reasons I had to take a couple months hiatus and I do apologize for that but I'm back and I'm ready to read some stuff for ya. Woohoo! <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh gosh, so much has been going on. But, and I believe last time I left off with author features a couple months ago, but due to the fact that you guys were probably getting a little bored with that, we're going to go back to the original way I do my podcast, and I'm going to be reading a combination of poems, short stories, and then I will end with an author feature at the end. That way you can have some poetry, you can have... A story that actually ends in one reading, all that jazz. So without further ado, I have called out for submissions and I have gotten new submissions from people from poems and short stories and thank you so much to all our authors and poets who have submitted and I'll get right into the readings. We're gonna start with poetry. Our first poem is by Joshua Kitchens. It is called A Stranger. A Stranger. Thunder claps violently as I rise from my bed, the visions of flame dancing still in my head. A memory, perhaps, or movie I've seen, there's no sense to dwell as it was just a dream. I dress for the weather and steady my hands, then exit my home to begin the night's plans. The wind forces rain as needles to my neck, and unforgiving concrete keeps my feet well in check. As I stroll through the town with my head hanging low, I see shadows of strangers and the feet in their hold. Spotting the first of my victims tonight, I carefully follow through streets lacking light. They lead me down alleyways and back behind homes, and through the old graveyard where the dead store their bones. The world now grows darker for the towns at our back, and the lake that's in front reflects the moon on cold black. We turn down the pathways that lead to the beach, and the stranger is close now, almost in reach. I stop in my tracks, as the first does the same. They sit on a bench, raise their head, and exclaim, Why have you left me, my loves, oh my dears? You said that you'd always be close to me, here! I point to my heart that you've broken in two. Now watch as I take my life under this moon. While I listen, I creep up behind this poor man. As I reach him, he's just finished sobbing his plan. I watch as he lowers his hand to a pocket. He draws out a gun. With a thumb, he does cock it. Raising it calm, he takes aim towards his head. I'm decided behind him, he won't end up dead. Quick as I can, without thought or delay, I grab the man's gun and toss it away. He turns, looking back with his eyes full of tears, but I'm not there as his vision, it clears. He sits there alone for a while and I view, as he looks to the moon and thinks his life through. The man is still sitting as the sun does its rise, but soon follow suit, starting off a fresh life. The new day begun, I now walk into town, with the sun at my back on my face rests a frown. No matter how many I help to be free, there's always that loneliness deep within me. I shake my head clear of these dark, useless thoughts. There's a new victim now in the shadows near lost. As I walk down the path on the street to my right stands a girl with a rose and her hair golden white. She seems not to see me or any other. It looks as she's blind, black shades, eyes covered, but still talks wise and wonderfully sings, and her beauty is greater than all other things. So why have I found her and why does she glow? 
What is to happen, and why don't I know? There is always a reason, and always a rhyme, but not in this case. I follow behind as she carefully walks, but it seems she's aware of this man that does stalk. What does it mean, I keep asking myself? Where is the trouble, and how can I help? We walk out of town to the dock by the shore. At the lake I was last, with the man who was sore. As we come near the bench, where he sat, cloaked in black, she stops by the edge of the lake and looks back. Where the once shaded eyes had appeared just before, I saw myself, now a reflection, and more. As the truth through her eyes had been brought into light, it was I on the bench whom I'd saved just last night. The question was answered before it was asked. She showed me a glimpse of a memory past. It was years ago now that it all happened quick. On a night like the last, raining cold icy pricks, I was sitting at home with my wife and our child, at a table for dinner, holding hands, we all smiled. It wasn't much later that my mind had a switch. I could see my face darken, and an eye had a twitch. I looked to the woman and baby together. I swore that I'd kill them. They deserved nothing better. The wife grabbed the baby and took for the door, but my hands were too quick, and she fell to the floor. As I noticed her standing, I reached for a knife. It flew to her back and drained her of life. The baby now trapped underneath its dead mother, I chose to just leave and let it smother. Flash back to now, from my eyes flow red tears. Emotions rush fast from all the lost years. The blind girl still standing there only but now, her eyes glowing bright and staring me down. I melt in her gaze as she calmly states flat, You've been here too long, child. Now hell wants you back. There's no more confusion, just clear words of reason. Once again now aware that inside I'm a demon. The eyes of the blind girl now brilliant black. Mouth opens wide and her nails pierce my back. As she draws me in nearer, I feel a great fear. Her tongue splits as a snake's and tickles my ear. While she whispers, so now you know why I've been sent. You've lived too long, your time is spent. Now come with me, you've got no choice. I've got you fixed, you've heard my voice. There's no escaping this, your fate. We've just now passed through hell's last gate. Witness here, your soul shall burn. Forevermore your limbs be torn, and from your flesh drained all your juice. Then round your neck a barbed chain noose. You'll dangle there for years and years. Your wounds will burn from all your tears. Now come with us to Satan's room. It's there you'll finally meet your doom. All went dark as this was said, and no sound found but in my head. What has just happened now? Can I be free? And if so, how? The darkness, though, it never goes away, and here I am still to this very day. There's nothing here but I in black. No sight, no sound, no going back. Just now I see a hint of light up in the distance burning bright. A blue-red-green speck comes up close, growing quick on its approach. The darkness dies to burning flame. It's clear I'm back in hell again. That was A Stranger by Joshua Kitchens. That was really dark. <laughs> That was kind of fun. I got to be a little evil reading that. Thank you, Joshua, for submitting. And we will move on into our next poem. This next one is much shorter. Actually, all the other ones are shorter. I, I read you the long one first. 
Alrighty, this next one is by Megan McCaffrey. It is called Journey. Journey. Tears turned us to a blue supernova. Hydrogen and helium are dwindling. Light years away, they see a bright coma, a past beautiful glory day twinkling, ending when they perceive today's doomsday. Mass is shrinking, how long to a black hole? My mind is stuck floating, ensnared halfway. Is this situation beyond control, or will you feel your actions' gravity? Despite your warmth, agony will inflate, so I will wander new galaxies without you. I seek superior fates. Now that you've become a vanishing blight, I orbit toward a distant star's light. That was Journey by Megan McCaffrey. You can follow her on Twitter at Dream Slinger On. Or is it Dreams Linger Dreams Linger On? It's at Dreams Linger On. Okay. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Alrighty. This next few poems are actually by the same person. They're not very long. They are from a book so this is not my author feature for this episode it just happens to be when she submitted her poems they're already from a book that she has published the book is called the four trimesters poems highlighting the joys of motherhood it is by rebecca hendrickson the first poem i'm going to read you by rebecca is called social media Social media. Only posting a smile, not the baby crying. Is there something we're hiding, or are we just lying? The siblings holding hands, none of the fighting. Hashtags of bliss and gratitude, we are writing. The toddler just threw a tantrum, the baby threw a fit. But we post the family happy, ashamed to admit. A picture for every month, decorated with stickers and chalk. If friends saw the reality, they'd all be in shock. We think everyone has it together, that no one is a mess. On social media, we hide all the flaws and only show our best. <laughs> I, I, her poems make me chuckle. They're very true. The next one by Rebecca Hendrickson is called Baby License. Baby License. We're really allowed to just go ahead, take this tiny human home? We're not quite sure we'll know what to do when we're doing this all alone. Just learned to change a diaper, not yet mastered how to feed. We won't know at all hours of night how to meet their every need. What we do if there's a problem where this tiny being won't sleep? Is it too late to change our minds? We think we're in too deep. We've barely kept a plant alive. We've never had a pet. We're getting awfully anxious, both breaking into a sweat. Shouldn't they check we're qualified to keep this miniature creature alive? It seems there should be some kind of test, like we all take just to drive. I guess there is no going back. We're going home today. All we can do is try our best and pray we do okay. Oh gosh, Rebecca. Ah, <laughs> uh, I wish you well. <laughs> I wish you well. <laughs> this next poem is called Postpartum Body. Postpartum. Post. Uh. <laughs> Oh, okay, it is postpartum. That sounds weird. I had to, to pause that and look that up real quick. Postpartum body. My body is made of pizza dough. You don't bounce back immediately, I know. Full of water, swollen with bloat. I look in the mirror with a lump in my throat. My body is made of inflated balloons. I hope my abs appear someday soon. I still look pregnant, about five months, not used to this body with its newfound lumps. My body is made of soft, stuffed pillows. It's hard not to feel like an absolute hippo. How will I ever get back to my old? It's worse than I had ever been told. 
thighs jiggle, arms wiggle, belly bounces when I giggle. This body just created life. I must not look at it in strife. Think of what it just accomplished. In due time, it will be polished. I must give love, acceptance, and patience. To this body of mine, I will be gracious. <laughs> oh, oh, honey. <laughs> You make you make me chuckle. <laughs> Those three short poems about motherhood were by Rebecca Hendrickson. They are from her book, The Four Trimesters, Poems Highlighting the Joys of Motherhood. You can find that on Amazon, and it currently has five stars, so check it out if you want to hear some more of her poems. And that will end our poetry section, guys. We'll be moving on into our short stories, and then at the end we will have our author feature. Yay! Alrighty, on into the short stories, yeah! Our first short story is... Actually, it's two small short stories by the same person from... The Retro Space Digest, 2589. It is by Eagle Monsoon. I do hope I am pronouncing that right. I think it's Monsoon. Okay. Anyway, the first story that I will be reading by Eagle Monsoon, well, well, the way it's set up, it's like a, a it's a, like a piece within, written within a piece. Anyway, the story is called The Legend of the Angel at Aznavur. I, I am so sorry I butchered that. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Aznavur, Aznavur by Edward Batwing Nuzzle Spout Johnson. That's a name. <laughs> Alrighty. The Legend of the Angel at Aznavur. One day, an angel came down and got the attention of humanity, which wasn't too difficult, what with being an angel and all. The angel said they needed to communicate with everyone. The world busied itself with television, the internet, and radio. For remote places, extreme measures were put in place, and the angel spoke in such a language that all would understand. The countdown to the angel addressing the earth was the most exciting time anyone had ever known. Suddenly, there were just seconds left, and then with a special kind of light around and of the angel, the angel appeared on the screen. The angel said hello and smiled. The entire world smiled back. Well, okay, almost the entire world. You know what some people are like. Everyone saw or heard the angel, and somehow the angel saw and heard all of them. Then the angel got out a pen and went to a board. The angel drew a circle, a perfect circle, and then the angel left the stage. The world went eerily quiet, awaiting the angel's return, but the seconds turned into minutes. An overexcited global populace began to whisper in even louder voices, The angel is not coming back! Someone opened. Broadcasters said that humanity would have to work out the meaning of the circle. Observers said the meaning was clear, although it was not so clear that they agreed upon it. Three main conclusions abounded, as the planet grew frenzied with discussion within moments. The historians felt they had the answer. The circle is the sign of time. History repeats itself. We must learn not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Life is not a straight line. We must improve ourselves to deal with the challenges ahead, whilst never forgetting where we have come from. But the theologians thought differently. This isn't about the past. This is about an ideal, they shouted. It is impossible to draw a perfect circle freehand for one of us, but the angel did it first time. Yet we too aspire to perfection. For all our weaknesses, we must become the best each of us can be. This will unlock the potential of ourselves and of the planet. Is that not clear? 
When one has the perfect circle, it serves as the perfect target to focus on for the future. The philosophers shook their heads in unison. Why is it that religious types are always focusing on our flaws and foibles? Can't you see that the circle is the planet? We are to embrace it and love it and love each other. The planet is one. When we realize that, life is easier. Do we all not benefit from the multitude of riches of another's land? From the wonders of others' cultures? We prosper and learn from our neighbors and them from us. We are all earthlings first, members of lesser factions second. We are not the owners of this planet, but mere custodians. It is time we realized our duty to protect life on this planet, the only place we know it exists. The surrealist said the circle was really a square, but then they would. And as the people began to argue, the angel reappeared on the stage and screened, smiling. There was a global hush. I'm terribly sorry. My pin ran out. I had to find another one, and it took me ages. By the way, I like your ideas, although you really need to cut down on your arguments and your egos. And if you can do that, well, this talk might go better than I dared hope. The simplest of things may teach us wisdom if we are open to learning. That was the end of the first short story in this excerpt. I will be reading the next one. This next one is called The Legend of Sprog. Sprog. The Legend of Sprog by Edward Batbing Nuzzle Sprout Johnson. The Legend of Sprog. Yadel Kepler and Romanticista were two young female grudlings on the planet Sprog. Both featured in high society and frequented balls and gala events. They talked of their peers and parties, and no party was more fabulous and famous than the Trilavine Ball. Even though it was months away, the girls talked of little else, what they'd wear, what they'd eat, and who they'd dance with. Although the girls were great friends, they were also great rivals. They would try to outdo each other in their appearance. At one event, Romantica had the entire guest list's names temporarily tattooed on her back in precious metal. But even that had been outdone by Yaldar Kepler, who had the guest list projecting from her eyeballs all night. At the frog party, Romantica had her tongue enlarged for the night and whipped it at people's ears. Yaldan Kepler had the same operation, but she'd also had her eyes enlarged and her pores exuded an intoxicant that made it a night to never forget. Romantica and Yadlin Kepler were both committed and creative, but Yadlin Kepler was also ridiculously rich. But it was Romantica's spies who found out what Yadlin Kepler was planning this time. Perhaps Romantica could finally get the limelight. Alas, when she discovered Yodlin Kepler's plans, she knew she simply couldn't compete. For Yodlin Kepler was having her skin grayed, her back furred, and a third eye. The cost of a third eye made Romantica's head spin, and it wasn't just for the night. This would be for the entire season. Romantica longed to have that sort of money. She'd have a third eye then, and a fourth, maybe a second nose too. But she wasn't rich like that. Desolate, Romantica told her dressmaker to do as he wished. The night came, and she put on the contextually simple dress. She was so miserable that she would have loved to have said she hated the dress. But the design, line, and fabric were elegant. She might not be the main attraction, but she might even have a passable night. She was warming to the occasion when Yonlin Kepler walked in as if she owned the place, which she did. Oh my goodness, almost shrieked one. Others drew their breath. But even before Romantica saw her, she knew the gasps were in shock of Yodlin Kepler, not awe, for she looked distinctly odd. She's gone too far this time. The frog thing was a triumph, darling. This is a failure, darling. But don't tell her I said that, darling. 
It was not long until the crowd looked for their Bella of the ball. What a simple dress, but absolutely beautiful, and no gimmicks, so brave, so canusha. Canusha, indeed, darling. Romantica realized they were looking at her, and as she looked for her friend to comfort her, she was glad she didn't have the money for a third eyeball. Be thankful for your blessings in disguise. That was the end of the short stories from retro space digest 2589 by eagle monsoon you can check it out on amazon and we will move on into our next short story this one also is an excerpt from a published book i got a lot of those so we'll just go with it but it's not technically my author feature for the night our next short story is from a book called hallucinations 10 tales of the supernatural by aaron lee this story is called birthday cake so without further ado we'll get right into the reading birthday cake and the troll hid under the bridge waiting for the next little kid to cross above his claws were sharp his teeth long and his skin dark and warty he heard the sound of small feet clicking on the bridge and licked his lips come down here and i will not eat you little one the small kid was afraid and ran in the other direction nell's face lit up the white and lavender sheets were pulled over her head just the way she liked it making her own little cave the only source of light was the small plastic flashlight lying next to her left ankle. She closed the book in satisfaction, clicked off the flashlight, and imagined the troll as she pulled the covers down. Trolls danced all around her in the small bedroom. They lingered on the darkened posters and the bookshelves. On the nightstand beside her sat her favorite collectible, a ceramic troll. Her parents thought it was a strange hobby of hers collecting all things trolls her mother didn't like it at all but her father laughed and liked to play along he must have spent long hours looking through shells of old knickknacks in order to find some of these things every time he brought something home for nell her mother would roll her eyes and say not another troll where do you find all these things nell knew there was a secret behind it the trolls wanted to come to her they wanted to be found and to be brought to her. With every gift, she thanked her father, but each time she knew her pets had finally come home. She noticed her alarm clock. It was well after ten. Her bedtime was at nine, but some nights she secretly waited for her parents to turn off the hall light and retire to their own bedroom. Then she would retreat under the covers, embracing a book. With a smile on her face and a dimple in her small teak, she took one last look around. The room appeared dark blue, once your eyes adjusted to it. The trolls in her window still cast shadows on the far bedroom wall. Sleep tight, she said into the darkness, then drifted to sleep. Nell was happy, and the trolls were still. Only a few clouds dotted the sky beyond the windows of the school bus. Nell rode, trying to ignore the other kids. There were so many of them, all yelling at once. They were energetic, bigger than little Nell, and they looked at her as though she was from another planet. They didn't know what it was like to feel so alone. They had each other, and in the process of their making friends, they always seemed to leave her out. She couldn't help but keep looking to her backpack. She knew if she opened it up, if she found solace in her imagination, they would tease and taunt her for it. She tried looking out the window. Houses went by. How many of them were empty? Cars in the street, and maybe trolls in the back seat. Her dreams caught up with her. It was too much fun. What if trolls really did ride in the back seat? They could guard you like gorgiles. Nell knew about those. They were scary, but they were supposed to scare away other bad guys. Nell couldn't resist it any longer. She turned her attention back to the comic book in her lap. The colorful images drifted off of the page and into her imagination. It was a dark tale of fantasy and adventure, and trolls, of course. One boy recognized the comic and smiled at her. 
Nail half ignored him and half mused at his attention. The feeling didn't last long. A girl leaned forward, looming over Nell's shoulder, blocking the view of the boy across the aisle. She squinted at the comic with distaste. Nellie, Wellie, when will you forget those stupid troll books, or will you be a nerd forever? Not again, one of the boys yelled from the back. Nerd, Nellie, Nellie, Wellie, you'll always be a nerd. Nell frowned. Maybe if she concentrated hard enough, they would all go away. She pictured the kids on the bus suddenly appearing in the comic, being devoured one by one by the ugly troll. She smiled at the thought. The girl behind Nell suddenly stopped laughing. From where she stooped, she had a clear view of the mirror above the bus driver. The reflection revealed a dark face. She gulped, closed her eyes, and when she opened them, all she could see in the mirror was the bald spot of the bus driver's head. The dark face had vanished. That weekend, a classmate held a party. Nell didn't want to go. Her mother forced it upon her. You really should go. It will be good for you to spend some time with other girls your own age. Nell didn't think so. She had spent plenty of time with them already. Her mother just didn't understand. Instead of screaming at her mother, she whispered a prayer to herself. Please let me make friends this time. She was going to give them one more chance. And if I can't, please keep me safe from them. At the party, the other girls stared and whispered behind her back. She knew what they thought of her, but trusted in the troll's protection. In the closet and from behind the doors, they watched over her. Walking down the stairs, Nellie brushed up against a few orange party balloons. A small reflection appeared within the depths of color. She winked at the icon of her dreams to lift her spirits. The party would soon be over. At least she hoped so. She hadn't made friends yet. Outside, there was a piñata, and each of them wanted to go first so they could break it open and get the candy. Nell stood behind the rest and thought maybe she could prove herself by hitting the piñata. Can I try? She asked in her small voice. They turned and stared at her. You? The birthday girl asked. You want to try? She looked at her with doubt. Nah, don't let Nell hit it first, one girl called out. She might ruin it for the rest of us. Huh. <sighs> Yeah, right. I doubt she could hit it even once, the girl in the blue dress standing right in front of her said. Could you, Nellie Welly? she challenged. What do you say? I won't miss, Nell responded. It came out like a whine. Okay, then let's see, the birthday girl said. She held out a black piece of cloth and taunted. But you gotta do it blindfolded, remember? And grinned. The girls circled Nell. They slung the blindfold around her eyes and laughed at the, as they spun her around. Where should she go? She took a few clumsy steps forward. Immediately, the girls giggled. Look at her. She's going the wrong way, they teased. She about-faced and took a few steps. Something nudged against her forehead, and she discovered that she now stood below the piñata. Someone yelled, Look! She ran right into the darn thing! Nell tried to ignore them and to focus. This was it. She pulled the broomstick back and swung it. The girls laughed when she completely missed the piñata. Nell, I knew you couldn't do it. What's the matter? Didn't your troll friends teach you how to swing a stick? Nell clenched her teeth and to everyone's surprise took a second swing. This one also missed and they laughed harder. Oh, Nellie, just stop. It's just too funny. Then Nell heard a wooden clap. The screen door had slapped shut behind the birthday girl's mother. Nell heard everyone ooh and ah as gift paper was ripped from the boxes the mother had brought out. Nell stood alone, holding the broomstick in a tight fist. Why did everyone hate her so? She took one more strong swing, and this time it was different. Her whole body spun in a complete circle. She missed the piñata, there was no doubt in that. But when the revolution was complete, and the broomstick motionless, the piñata burst. She heard it pop like a paper bag. She removed the blindfold. The others glared at her. Hey, you broke it! The birthday girl approached Nell, walking right over the scattered goodies, and gave her a good hard slap across her face. Nell knew the truth that it wasn't her doing. That was my piñata! The birthday girl's mother came up to the two and looked at them both, moving her eyes from one girl to the next. Finally, she stared only at Nell. You little brat, she murmured. 
Little Nell was led by the wrist and taken to the far end of the picnic table. When the girls were done admiring the birthday presents and picking up all the candy, they were ready for their cake and ice cream. Nell was convinced she would never make a friend with any of these girls. She ate her cake with a frown on her face. Her cheek throbbed. Then out of nowhere, a sickening thud struck Nell. She felt something against the side of her neck. It was cold and wet. Strawberry cheesecake ice cream. Someone had slung it at her, and she began to cry. Everyone laughed. Even the mother couldn't hold back. Little Nell wanted to run away, but there was nowhere to go. How she wished she could just be alone. A monstrous claw reached out from under the table. It snatched the birthday girl and dragged her beneath the checkered tablecloth. The trolls were no longer still. The girl sitting next to Nell saw this. Apparently no one else had. They were all laughing at Nell and let out a shrill high-pitched scream which grabbed everyone's attention. More claws reached out from under the table. They were attached to large, bumpy hands and arms. Their fingers were long enough that they grabbed the children around their waists. Each of the claws grabbed hold of a child. The children pleaded for help, trying to escape. Within a few seconds, all of them had been pulled under, all but Nell. The grown-up stared in shock and didn't believe what had just happened. A long, thin hand reached out. It stretched the entire length from the table to where she stood and grabbed hold of her. She thrashed about, but the hand would not release her. She fell back and hit her head on the concrete patio. In the end, the trolls got her, too. Nell stopped crying. She wiped her cheeks with her shirt sleeve, picked up the napkin, and folded it neatly in her lap. The screaming had died down. She was calm, and the trolls were still. Eleanor Nelson smiled and finished her birthday cake. End of the story. Well, gosh, I'm a little disturbed now. I guess don't make fun of kids because you'll be eaten by trolls. <laughs> that was Birthday Cake by Aaron Lee. You can find his book, Hallucinations, Ten Tales of the Supernatural on Amazon. It currently has five stars. Feel free to check that out. You can also check out his website, aelbooks.webs.com. Thank you, Erin, for submitting that incredibly disturbing story. <laughs> and without further ado, we will move on into our author feature, and this will be our final segment for the night, guys. Night. I always say night. I don't know why. Whether or not you're listening to this in the morning, afternoon, five weeks from now, or five years from now, it's whatever. So, without further ado, we'll just get right into this final segment. Woohoo! Our featured author today is Daniel Kelly. Daniel Kelly grew up with a love of history and stories in the village of, forgive me if I pronounced this wrong, Kreloj along the north coast of Dongal before qualifying as a chef from Tourism College. He is the author of the book, The Fall of Phoenix. A little excerpt about the book is, The long siege of Troy, the battles fought over it, and the city's eventual capitalization and incineration are events which have often been retold since their first recitation by Homer. Seldom, however, will they have been narrated with such close attention to the minute particulars of battle, to its reek and terror and pain, as in this startling account by Daniel Kelly. So that's what we're reading today. Let's get right on into it. The Fall of Phoenix. Prologue. Under the warm morning sun, one man stood alone in a circle, surrounded by enemies bent on destroying his city. His circle of twenty, his personal bodyguard, unmoving, facing outwards with heavy shields, spears in hand, and sheathed swords. They seemed a fairly flimsy barrier around the ring, resplendent in the heavy bronze armor of a prince of his city. Hector looked out across the sea of faces, all of whom wanted him dead. 
He didn't fear them, however. He knew that none dared approach, though unafraid of him, any of them would die happy if they were the one to take his life, knowing that their name would live down through the ages. A trumpet blasted further down the beach, and at this he did feel fear. It echoed in his head as his own death toll, because this was the day he would die. The man who held his enemies at bay was approaching. Achilles, his childhood friend, his training companion, had claimed the right to his life that very morning as revenge for the death of his little brother, a right Hector could not deny. Watching the approach of the black-armored Myrodonians leading Achilles on his chariot, Hector recalled every training bout he had ever fought against Achilles, and vainly tried to remember some slip, some weakness shown. Achilles was a legend come to life. He never made the same mistake twice, and remembered every trick. At fourteen, he had bested his tutors. In any other generation, Hector would have been considered a great warrior. And, in truth, he was, but he knew that here and now he was sorely outmatched, not for the first time. He wondered if Achilles really was the demigod his followers claimed. A pathway opened up through the watching Greeks as the Myrodonians made their way to the circle where Hector waited with the priests of Hades and Ares, closing quickly behind when Achilles passed through. Everyone wanted to be as close as possible to see him die. Looking back, he saw the walls of Troy packed with his own soldiers, unable to do anything but watch. Further back still, on the palace walls, his father stood beside Hector's wife and mother, an old man now after ten years of war, much changed from the man Hector remembered. He felt, rather than saw, Achilles arrive, as silence descended around him, and he turned to face his fate. The Myrmidons spread out quickly around the circular trench that they had dug the previous morning. Achilles, inches taller than those around him, stepped down from his chariot clad in armor as dark as night. Sun-darkened skin from his time on the beach of Troy, blonde hair just touching his shoulders, he carried confidence as other men carried their shields. Today, however, his expression could have cut rocks. This was not the face of the boy, Hector remembered. It was harder and colder than that he knew. Even with reddened eyes from a night spent weeping for his brother. When those eyes turned to Hector, their rawness seemed to radiate the burning hatred therein. Hector tried to convince himself that the sweat running down his back was just from standing in the midday sun in full armor. But a little voice in his mind gave it the lie, screaming, RUN! over and over in the back of his mind. As Achilles crossed the trench, surrounded by Greeks, even that slim chance was taken away. A burning torch was tossed into the trench to send flames leaping into the air all the way around the circle where they would do battle. Seconds passed, which felt like hours, before the priests tossed a sword through the flames to each of them, landing a few feet away in the sand and sending up a small cloud of dust as they fell. Hector knelt and lifted a handful of sand, rubbing it between his hands to dry the sweat and give him a grip on the hilt of the sword before he picked up both sword and shield, keeping his eyes on Achilles. Stabbing his sword into the ground, he forced his legs forward towards Achilles, unarmed, just a few paces across the sand, but a great distance. Achilles, he pleaded, I didn't know who he was. He was in your armor. He moved like you. I thought it was you. Achilles, who had been taking a few practice swings to stretch his muscles, suddenly swung a huge underarm sweep, which hit the dead center of Hector's shield, sending shivers up his arm. And you thought the great Hector could beat Achilles, he roared. No, I expected to die. Hector dodged another overhead swing as he danced back to pick up his own sword. And even then, I fought in defense. It was a freak accident when he moved forward into my sword. Achilles! We trained together, grew to men as brothers, fought together. Even if it had been you, I didn't want your blood on my sword! said Hector, bringing up his weapon to block another overhead blow from Achilles. Nor did I want mine on yours. I was fighting for my life, too. He was my brother. He came to train with me, under my protection, and you killed him. 
Achilles' teeth bared in a rickish snarl as he swept past Hector, deflecting Hector's shield with his own to sweep his sword behind. Dancing back saved Hector from taking a blow to the upper thigh, but he was being pushed further back towards the fire pit surrounding the battle. It was time to do something before he ended up pushed into that pit. He couldn't keep on defending. Rolling left, he came up with a swing at Achilles' groin that made the bigger man dance back with a half-smile, half-snarl. That's better, said Achilles. At least give them a show before you die. He swung the edge of his shield, achieving a glancing blow off Hector's helmet, which he wasn't fast enough to evade. Hector dropped and rolled away again, giving his head a chance to recover as Achilles' sword struck the ground where he had been standing a second before. The thought occurred to him that Achilles didn't usually miss. A painful memory from training with him, but before he had time to consider the matter, he was lashing out at Achilles' exposed leg as he came out of the roll. Achilles had anticipated him, lifting his foot just enough for Hector's sword to pass underneath it, and was now striking like a viper towards the joint between his breastplate and helmet. Hector twisted frantically to one side and felt the blade miss by a hair's breadth, scraping along his armor and scratching his shoulder. He lifted his own sword for an underhand blow at Achilles' stomach, which made Achilles move back again and dance away himself. When he had a few feet between them, he glanced at his shoulder to see what injury he had sustained, just a scratch, and moved forward again to strike at Achilles. Time seemed to slow as they moved through the forms which they had been taught together as children, never thinking that they might use them against each other. A slow, beautiful, deadly dance ensued as they came together in a clash of bronze and a fury of blows, until Hector lost track of time. He felt the scratch burn on his shoulder, another, a deeper wound on his upper thigh, dripped blood down his leg. The burning grew worse, becoming hard to bear. Glancing at his leg to see whether the cut was worse than he'd judged, he thought, it shouldn't burn like this. The distraction nearly cost him another wound to the arm, as Achilles came at him again. He had fought Achilles in training many times, and had always thought himself faster than this. His muscles felt as if he were moving through jelly, and it was all he could do to hold off the onslaught as he took blow after blow on his sword while watching for the razor-sharp edge which he knew Achilles had filed on the base of his shield. That little surprise had cost many of his opponents their lives. Again and again he tried to bring his sword to bear, but every time Achilles seemed to be there before him, and what had started out as an offensive slash to buy him a few precious seconds in order to get his bearings turned into a desperate attempt to bring his sword back to defend himself. His shoulder began to ache where he had taken the nick, and his leg burned with every step, Achilles adding more scrapes to his upper arm as yet again he was too slow. It struck him that Achilles might be punishing him for the death of his brother by bleeding him into the death of a thousand needles. Soon he would be losing small amounts of blood from a dozen minor scratches if he didn't manage to do something soon. The thought turned to panic as his legs went out from under him, rolling away to avoid a spear thrust from Achilles which stabbed hard into the ground where his shoulder had just been. He swung back his shield hard, hearing a crack as it crashed down on Achilles' sandaled foot. He swung his sword around as he scrambled back to his feet. Across the sand, Achilles had limped back a few steps and was testing his foot. He came forward again, and his sword hit Hector's shield with the force of a wave crashing against rocks. Hector felt his world spinning and dropped to one knee, attempting to swing his sword under his shield, but his strength seemed to finally be failing him. As his grip slipped on the handle of his sword, he watched the weapon spin towards Achilles' legs and carve a small line above his ankle before spinning on. It was enough to turn Achilles' killing blow into a glancing thump off Hector's shield. A light enough blow, but Hector felt the world darken around him. Achilles jumped back at the cut to his leg, and Hector attempted to regain his feet, pushing himself up from his knee. His strength gave out as his grip loosened and his head fell towards the sand. He couldn't believe what was happening. Not yet, not yet! But he lay face down in the sand and watched sandaled feet shuffle unsteadily towards him while the world seemed to fade, dimming. 
It can't be night already, he thought blearily, but as the feet stopped in front of him, he knew he was gone. The world went black. End of prologue. Chapter 1 Blairy eyes opened slowly to darkness. There was a noise, but what was it? Something far away, but it was hard to make himself care. He looked up at rough wooden beams covered with thatch, turning his head towards the wall. The bare, whitewashed walls were just starting to brighten as light flooded around the rag hung over the window to act as a curtain. That noise came again, ringing in his head like the remains of cheap wine, and suddenly his eyes shot open as the last remnants of sleep were driven away by that familiar noise. Jumping from his cot in the corner of his small room, Diomedes pulled back the curtain to see that it was already full day. Strapping on his armor took only seconds. His greaves took slightly longer to lace up. Fastening his sword belt and picking up his sparkling bronze shield and crested helmet, he turned to open the coarse plank door. Outside, the narrow dirt street was already buzzing with soldiers hurrying along, some still struggling into their armor. Civilians were setting up shops and going about their lives, as they had for the ten long years since the Greeks first set up their siege. Though they still looked decidedly uncomfortable hearing the alarm and seeing all the soldiers rushing by. Making his way through the crowds, Diomedes rounded the corner, heading on to the main paved road to the wall. Suddenly, the breath was pulled out of his lungs, and pressure built up around his throat as he was lifted backwards off the ground and sent flying through the air. He slid to a stop on his lightly armored backside on the hard-packed dirt he was just leaving. Looking up, he saw the scowling, heavy-lined face of Podidus. Fringed with what survived of his long white hair, it was the face of a career soldier made captain after thirty years of service. His expression said that he knew he'd got the promotion because everyone above him had died. "'Uncle, what the hell did you do that for?' shouted Diomedes, climbing back to his feet. "'I have told you before, Diomedes, put up that armor. "'When you're old enough, you can wear your father's armor, "'but for now you will carry out your duties as my shield-bearer,' growled Podias. "'It's my armor now, the only thing my father left me,' Diomedes said sullenly, "'wet tears glistening in his eyes. "'I'm ready to take my father's place in the phalanx.' No, my boy, and I said that as a phalanx file leader, replied Podias. As your uncle, I remind you that when your father lay dying, I promised him I would look after you and see you trained before you joined the phalanx. Putting a hand on Diomedes' shoulder, which was still only chest high to him, Podias went on, At the minute you're not big and strong enough for the flanks. You would get yourself killed, and the men around you too, by being a weak spot in the line. Come, let's get you changed and pick up the weapon more suited to your place in this battle. Where's that bow you won? It would be more use from the wall, anyway. What about the alarm call, said Diomedes, still trying to turn towards the wall, but Podias had a grip on the neck of his breastplate that nearly pulled it over his head and was guiding his feet back down the lane towards the small house he shared with his mother. Some fool on alarm duty panicked. It's just Achilles, riding up and down in front of the walls, calling for Hector. I was doing the rounds of the towers this morning when he showed up. I stopped the alarm and came back for you. This is something you'll want to see. Curiosity, overtaking annoyance at his uncle's intervention, hurried Diomedes' feet into his house, and he pestered Podias all the way over what he was bringing him to see. With weary patience, the same reply kept coming back. Hurry up and get ready, and you'll see for yourself. Diomedes took off the armor, scowling all the while. He slipped it loosely over his head without even having to undo the straps, which were already tightened as far as they would go, and replaced it on the wooden stand in the corner of his small room. Clad in his blue-trimmed white tunic, he turned to the door, where once again Podias grimly blocked his path. "'Your bow,' he said." nodding to the corner where stood his unstrung, double-recurved horn bow. A rarity. This bow had been won in an archery competition and presented by Diomedes' greatest hero, Hector himself. Brought from far Asia, its engravings were inlaid in gold and silver leaf. Tying a quiver of arrows around his waist, Diomedes picked up his bow and was finally let out of the door. Podias led them through the streets to the wall. Soldiers and civilians parted before him. 
due to a combination of his rank and scowl which tugged at a jagged, puckering scar running right up his jaw, splitting his ear in two where a spear had struck under his helmet. Diomedes trailed at his heels like a hound, also scowling, but his frown was directed at Podias' back. He still wouldn't say where they were going or what they would see. His uncle had been like this ever since his father had died in battle three years ago. Now, he had been a real man. Adrius and Hector had killed gloriously on that day. They had broken away from the flanks as Ajax and his Loctrans were fleeing. People still talked about it, about the dance of death they weaved through the Loctrans as they fled the battle. They called it beautiful to watch. Diomedes wished that he had been old enough to be there that day, to watch his father dance, but he had still been tied to his mother's apron strings, too young even to be allowed to watch from the walls. Achilles and his Myridonians had come up behind the Loctrians then, taken by surprise in the open, facing an enemy flanks the pair had never had a chance. His father died a hero, while bloody Podias, the coward, hid behind his shield in the flanks. He'd screamed at the rest of the flanks to hold their position when they'd wanted to rescue his father and Hector. Hector survived only after being knocked unconscious by the flanks, eventually passing over him. It held the Myrdonians long enough for Hector and the body of Adrius to be retrieved, before backing away from the battle once again. The wall came into sight again, still lined with soldiers, but Podias had been right. There was no battle. Most of the people he could see on the wall looked bored, in fact. Making their way over to the tower, Podias led them up the stairs to the towers and bridge over the main gate. Looking out over the field, nothing made sense to Diomedes. Achilles was nowhere to be seen. His Myrdonians, however, were a few hundred feet out, digging holes. The rest of the Greeks seemed to be making their way up from the beach. None were armored, though they still wore belted swords over their tunics. It looked as if they were going for an afternoon picnic, rather than making ready to attack the greatest city in the world. What are they doing? Diomedes asked. Preparing. Waiting, replied Podias, sadly. Today they'll probably hurt Troy more than they have in ten years. Pointing down to the Myrdonians, he said, See down there? They're digging a pit around the dueling grounds. Achilles has challenged Hector to a duel. Diomedes was confused by his uncle's remarks. But Hector will win, he said confidently. Hector has never lost a battle. He's the greatest warrior in the world. Hector has never lost a battle where he led the army. That's true enough, said Podias. But neither has he ever won one. In some battles, both sides walk away on an equal footing. This isn't a battle, Diomedes, it's a duel, and Achilles is a warrior without equal. Our best chance to beat Achilles was in a flanks, where his true skill couldn't be brought to bear. In one-on-one -on -one combat, Diomedes, I don't think he can be beaten, and only one man can leave that circle alive. You're wrong, shouted Diomedes. Nobody can beat Hector. Nobody! Dropping the bow and quiver, Diomedes ran for the stairs with tears running down his cheeks, silently watched by soldiers and his uncle, who wished fervently that the boy were right. He ran till his lungs burned and his legs ached and kept on going. Finally curling into a ball in one of the many alleys throughout Troy, he hid behind some pallets and cried. End of excerpt. That was not necessarily the end of chapter one. Chapter one was incredibly long, but I had to shorten this because this is already a really long episode. <laughs> but, well, that's all good since it's my first time coming back in a while, so. That was The Fall of Phoenix by Daniel Kelly. You can find it on Amazon. It currently has four and a half stars. If you have Kindle Unlimited, you can currently read it for free. Fun! So... That ends our readings for the day, guys, and I'm so glad to be back. I hope you all enjoyed all the readings. Thanks so much to all our writers and poets and our author who allowed me to feature his book. I will do my best to be getting you out at least one episode a week, and I will be changing when I upload. I will be doing it on Tuesdays instead of Sundays, because Sundays are my only day off, and that's the only day I can record. <laughs> And so I don't have to shove it all into one day. I can do editing over time. Woohoo! So, yeah, there's that. I hope you all enjoyed the readings. Thank you so much, everybody, again. This has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I've been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap. 